0: You're listening to West Coast Water Justice, where we talk about water in the Western United States. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. In this episode, we follow up with Clifford Lee, retired Deputy Attorney General for the state of California. We dive deeper into policy, conservation, and water management, and hear his ideas on how we can move policy forward in order to protect the public trust and ensure future generations can enjoy the state's biodiversity and water coming out of the tap. If you haven't checked out his first episode, Updating California Water Policy for Climate Change, give it a listen. Let's get started. In other episodes, we've been learning about the inequities in California water rights and laws. If water's in the public trust and we're letting industrial farmers become billionaires, while approximately 1 million Californians can't access safe drinking water. Is there a way to remedy this injustice to the people of California?
1: This is a difficult question because it goes not simply to the structure of our water resource system, but in essence, the political and economic structure of our society. So this is a hard question to resolve. Now, it is true that water use in California is constrained by the California Public Trust Doctrine. This doctrine requires that state water allocation decisions protect environmental values where such protections are reasonable and feasible. Water use is also subject to the California constitutional requirement that all water be used reasonably and that waste of water be enjoined. The public trust doctrine and the reasonable use doctrine are present in California law and can be used to limit water use to protect public interest values in water. Its appropriate use is a matter of a case-by-case determination, but it it is available. My personal response to the question of equity and fairness is that in terms of people that are interested in water reform, what I think one should look at is what I would like to call non-reformist reforms, reforms that attempt not simply to produce a good policy result, such as better fish protection, but reforms that Shift the correlation of power in the water resource decision-making process. Now, what do I mean about that? Very frequently we see this in water resource decisions: that the the well-heeled, the well-financed interest groups can hire teams of water lawyers and water experts to participate in these complicated administrative proceedings. And public interest groups, even if they become aware of these proceedings, are outnumbered and outgunned so reforms that i call non-reformist reforms or reforms that would attempt to change that correlation that balance of power the water reform group made two recommendations that are modest steps in that direction one we are going to ensure that within the regional water quality control boards and the state water resources control board there be one person who is appointed to those boards, and the boards are appointed by the governor, by the way, who has a background in environmental justice. It is not unusual to require these categories of backgrounds on members of the water board. The current law requires that the State Water Resources Control Board must have one member with a background in agriculture. That's been in the water code for many, many years. If the legislature can require that the Water Board include one member with a background in agriculture, there is no reason why the legislature cannot require that a member of the Water Board also come with a background in environmental justice. This would be an example of a non-reformist reform that might assist in changing the balance of power in the decision-making process. The second recommendation that the legislature should try to create a fund that would allow non-governmental agencies and tribal groups and other public interest participants to be compensated for their reasonable and necessary expenses in participating in these administrative proceedings where their participation has provided meaningful assistance to the board in developing its decisions. Again, this would institutionalize a process where players that are not typically the stakeholders in water resource decision-making have the resources to come forward. Now, this is not a complete list of non-reformist reforms, but I think it is a start for a process for a fairer and more equitable water resource decision-making process.
0: In another podcast episode titled California's Inequitable Water Rights System and Water Projects, we interviewed Doug Obigi from NRDC. He had mentioned the Delta Reform Act, And how important that is for water quality and fishery protection. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Now, the Delta Reform Act is not implemented by the State Water Resources Control Board or the Regional Water Quality Control Boards. It's implemented by an entity called the Delta Stewardship Council. Summarizing briefly, the primary responsibility of the Delta Stewardship Council was to create a Delta plan, a plan that would protect beneficial uses of water from the Delta. Now there was some clear and obvious overlap with the State Water Resources Control Board's responsibilities under its water rights and water quality law. But nonetheless, the legislature went ahead and adopted the Delta Reform Act. The Delta plan was it's supposed to include recommendations and provisions and requirements that would protect the Delta. if. Any person or entity, including water projects, were going to engage in activity that would affect the Delta, they would have to come to the Delta Stewardship Council and secure a certification that their activities were consistent with the Delta plan. So small diverters, large diverters, developers would all have to get a certificate of approval from the Delta Stewardship Council, that their activities were consistent with the Delta plan. Now, I have to say, and this is me personally speaking, I'm not a huge fan of the Delta Reform Act. I think the Delta Reform Act reflected what I view as the major structural problem of water resource decision-making in the state of California, and that is creating a structure that avoids making hard decisions that involve trade-offs. I think one can see in the history of California that in water resource management, where there is an effort to avoid making hard choices to what I'll call kick the can down the road, we have increasingly seen that option as being chosen. I would have to say the Delta Reform Act, to my mind, is a flawed act because its fundamental premise was that the Delta Plan and the Delta Stewardship Council should be guided by the the co-equal goals of protecting the Delta, Bay Delta ecosystem, and providing a water supply for off-stream users. That was the foundational principle set forth in the Delta Reform Act, that the Delta Plan has to protect the environment and also ensure a reliable water supply. While it's kind of obvious from the beginning and the get-go, you can't do both in the hard cases and the hard situations that water resource planning develops. You can't, at the same time, ensure a reliable water supply for Austrian users and protect the ecosystem from which that water is being diverted. And so the premise of the Delta Reform Act, which is, in essence, a legislative declaration that you can have your cake and eat it too, I think is flawed. This, I think, has been the foundational problem with implementing the Delta Reform Act. You cannot thread the needle because the requirement that you both protect the environment and provide a reliable water supply for off-stream users, in many cases, and certainly in the critical decisions that have to be made in water resource management, are not compatible. Now, as a matter of implementation the Delta Stewardship Council did its best and adopted a Delta plan in which they were promptly sued upon. All I'm saying is that I think the fundamental aspect of the Delta Reform Act was set up to fail. And that the Delta Reform Act, that the Delta Stewardship Council, and that the Delta plan have not been major players in water resource management in California, grew out of the false assumption that you could have your cake and eat it too. If any lesson I think that should be taken from the the recent history of water resource management in California is that we can no longer afford to kick the can down the road. We have to make the hard decisions that will result in trade-offs in water uses.
0: So how is the state protecting the Delta and how are water allocations balanced with healthy fisheries?
1: The Delta water allocations are managed through a number of complicated federal and state laws. The most salient state law is the California Water Rights and Water Quality Law that allows the State Water Resources Control Board, the key water regulator in California, to set water quality objectives to protect beneficial uses in the Delta, including fishery beneficial uses. What's that mean? Well, for... Drinking water, obviously, you need drinking water of sufficient quality to be consumed by families and anyone else in industries that use water. And the saline content is a huge issue. But for fish, water quality objectives, generally speaking, mean how much fresh water is flowing from the Sacramento and San Joaquin Rivers through the Delta into Susun Bay and out into the ocean. Because generally speaking, the greater amount of flow, freshwater flow, in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, the greater fishery protection there is for our species like the salmon and the steelhead and other local species like the Delta smelt. The mechanism for setting those flows is something called water quality control plans that are adopted by the State Water Resources Control Board. The last Effort to set comprehensive water quality control objectives for the Delta to protect fisheries was in 1995, and it wasn't implemented fully until 2000. So, we're talking about roughly a 27 year lag in the development by the state of California of fishery protection measures for the Delta. During that 27 year period, we have learned an awful lot about delta fishery management and the protection of our fishery resources in the delta. And that knowledge needs to be incorporated into new water quality control plans for the delta that protect the fish. During that time, we've all seen a dramatic decline in in the native fisheries, indicating that the earlier water quality objectives for fishery protections were most likely and almost certainly inadequate to protect the fishery resources. So coupled with the new science in the Delta and the clear decline in fisheries, there's an urgent need to set new fishery standards for the Delta to ensure that future generations will be able to benefit from our native fishery species. Well, how do you go about doing that? What the law generally provides, California law, is that the State Water Resources Control Board opens up a proceeding, an administrative proceeding, takes evidence, all right, and then renders a determination based upon the best available science as to what is necessary to provide reasonable protection for California's fishery species that traverse the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta. And they then put those recommendations into a new water quality control plan and then implement them as to the folks who divert water from the delta, primarily the two major water projects, although not exclusively so. Now, inevitably, this results in litigation. In order to provide sufficient flows in the delta, you need to limit and constrain the amount that the two projects and other diverters from the delta take because there is, an effect, a zero-sum game. The more water that diverters from the delta take, the less natural flow is present in the Delta to protect fish. So there is a trade-off here. Those that are harmed by any trade-off adopted by the State Water Resources Control Board will likely sue. In order to limit the litigation, many people in the water business have suggested, and the current governor has been supportive of this, that as many of the stakeholders as possible get together those that are environmentally oriented, those that are farmers, those that are municipalities and city water agencies, and try to work out a voluntary agreement of what is necessary to protect fishery species in the Delta. And usually the rationale is, if we don't do this, there will be endless litigation. All right. And we want to avoid endless litigation. Well, I have two or three comments about this. All right. The first comment is you can talk about developing water quality objectives to protect fish in these negotiations for months and months and years and years. And in fact, we have and to date, there has been no scientifically defensible agreement reached by any of those involved in these discussions for the protection of fishery resources and this is part of the reason, although not the whole reason, why we have seen a 27 year delay between the time in which the last water quality objective review was conducted and our present time. So there there is from my sense a notion that the voluntary agreement process that we currently see has produced nothing really but delay, a delay at the time when the fishery species has declined. But what about the challenge that, well, if don't continue with these negotiations, everything will collapse in litigation. And my response to that has been, you shouldn't be afraid of litigation. Notwithstanding what everyone has said, a litigation in the water field is not necessarily endless, not this type of litigation anyway. Water board decisions on fishery protections usually are well-grounded in fact that is the evidence and the science of what is necessary to protect the fishery resources. They are usually measured and therefore are likely to be affirmed by our trial and appellate courts. Justices and judges normally will not want to second guess the scientific judgments uh, rendered by state agencies regarding the protection of fish. So my response is you shouldn't be afraid of litigation. Litigation, first of all, is not endless. And secondly, particularly if you get a court of appeal decision, an appellate decision, it will lay out with some clarity what the law is in the state of California for fishery protection in your case. And that law will be broadly applicable in other cases. So you will have advanced the understanding of The legal requirements for protecting fish, if you go through the litigation process, something that the voluntary agreement process would not necessarily provide. You should never reject the opportunity to develop a voluntary agreement for fishery protection in the Delta. But if that is not working, and if you're not getting results and you're only getting delays, then the state of California shouldn't be afraid of litigation because the courts are there and will likely provide you with a clear understanding and clarification of what the legal requirements are.
0: Okay. Thanks for explaining that. So you're basically saying that the legal framework is there and it's good to use it to move policy forward if we need to, to protect endangered species, as an example.
1: I would say that's correct. You should allow the agencies of the state of California to work with the statutes that the legislature has passed to protect listed species, and you should allow them to make their decisions. And you don't need to wait for voluntary agreements, particularly if it looks like the process only is producing delay. The agencies of the state of California and policymakers shouldn't be afraid to make those hard choices, as I think we might talk about further in this interview. The fear of making hard choices has been one of the problems in California water resource management.
0: You went into it some, but what are California's options in protecting native fish species if the federal government fails to meet California's protections, like what you were talking about with the Trump administration?
1: Well, this is important contingencies planning for the state of California, because while we have had the benefit in terms of fishery protection from the Biden administration, I think all of your listeners are aware that the Biden administration is always at risk of being replaced by an administration that would be less protective fishery resources. One of the things that is counterintuitive, I would say, about water is that California generally has had higher protections for species protection and fishery protection than those imposed by the federal government. This has not always been the case, but it generally has been the case. So to take a state's rights position, I know state's rights has a connotation related to segregation and to uh, all sorts of conservative thinking that many people abhor. But in California, requiring water actors to comply with state environmental laws usually means that you will see higher protection. California water rights law and the California Endangered Species Act are pretty powerful tools if used properly to protect species in California that are threatened with extinction. An important legal question is whether those laws can and should apply to the federal government. As I think your listeners know, the Federal Central Valley Project, which is run by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, is the largest water project in the state of California. It is the 800 pound water gorilla. And it makes no sense if every other entity that diverts water from the Delta complies with California's more rigorous environmental protections. Uh, if the Federal Central Valley Project, as a federal run, facility, doesn't comply with California law. The alternative and the options available to the state is to simply be aggressive in requiring the federal project comply with state environmental laws. Now, there is a well-established legal principle that the federal projects must comply with state law relating to the control, appropriation, use or distribution of water within a state unless compliance with state law is directly inconsistent with a clear congressional directive for the federal project. This comes out of federal law. Now, just as a little bit of background, the federal government under the Supremacy Clause in the U.S. Constitution normally doesn't have to comply with the law of the individual states In which federal projects are located in. Generally speaking, federal law is superior to state law under the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution. And a federal project, if it moves into a state and is built, would typically, absent some specific language from Congress, would not have to comply with state law. Now, obviously, if a federal project was built within A state watershed and it destroyed the water rights of other users, those other users would have to be compensated. But aside from that, there is no general requirement in the Constitution. In fact, there is language to the contrary that a federal project does not have to comply with state regulatory law. However, the federal reclamation law, which is the foundational law passed by Congress for the Central Valley Project and other reclamation projects in the West contains a provision, Section 8 of the Reclamation Act, that says the Secretary of the Interior in building and operating reclamation projects must comply with state law relating to the control, appropriation, use, or distribution of water. Now, the state of California has repeatedly argued and has been successful in saying that state law relating to the control, appropriation, use, or distribution of water includes state environmental law. And so to the extent the State Water Resources Control Board, under the public trust doctrine, says the Bureau of Reclamation, you have to comply with the public trust doctrine and protect fish in the state. Generally speaking, the state of California has prevailed in those arguments. So state law can be applied to the federal project. I think in addition to state water rights law and the public trust doctrine, my personal view is I think the California Endangered Species Act, to the extent it's directed at protecting California's fishery species, can also be applied to the Bureau of Reclamation in the operation of the Central Valley Project. Now, this is an untested legal question, but I am reasonably confident That if this issue ever was raised and was addressed by the federal appellate courts, that the courts would say to the extent the California Endangered Species Act is directed at water projects for the protection of in stream uses such as fishery protection, that implementation of the California Endangered Species Act would be an enforceable term against a federal project such as the Central Valley Project. So if In fact, we have a future federal government uh, that chooses not as a matter of policy to protect the state's fishery resources. There are both water rights and endangered species laws adopted by the state of California that are available as tools to force the federal government to provide the necessary protections. We only, a California administration, with the political will to use those tools.
0: I'm wondering, how would adjudicating existing water rights help? Like, will this quantify currently unknown amounts that riparian or pre-1914 appropriative water claims are using? Or how much water could this free up?
1: As I think I mentioned earlier, in California, actually unlike other Western states, California is really alone in this, We have this patchwork system for surface water. Many of the water users hold what are called riparian water rights, which are water rights that are attached to the land. They are non-quantified and are not transferable. And due to certain historical circumstances, have a very senior priority date. Water in California, generally speaking, not exclusively speaking, is allocated on how senior your water right is. People who hold riparian rights don't need a permit from the State Water Resources Control Board to divert. There are also water rights that were secured through a process developed by miners, gold miners, in the 19th century. These are called pre 1914 appropriative water rights. During the Gold Rush era, the miners developed a system for allocating water called appropriation, in which the water was simply diverted from the stream placed to beneficial use many times miles away from the points of diversion and in times of shortage allocation was based on the principle of first in time first in right in other words the miner who diverted the water first got it over the miner who diverted water later if there was shortage due to droughts and as we know from our california history Hydraulic mining was extremely water-intensive, so the miners developed their own method of allocation, which came to be known as an appropriate water right process. Again, there was no need in the 19th century, no requirement by state law that the miner get a permit from state agencies. They just took the water, put it to beneficial use. On occasion, they would have to file a notice with the county recorder's office that they had diverted the water, but there was no centralized requirement. And those diversions, since many of them occurred in the 19th century, have very senior priority rates. In other words, they have to be satisfied first over later diverters in the event of a drought. Finally, in 1913, the California legislature got around to adopting a system where you had to get a permit or a license from the State Water Resources Control Board or its predecessor before you could divert and store water and put it to beneficial use. Again, the permit and licenses followed the mining custom that the miners had developed and then used a first-in-time, first-in-right process. But since the statutory system of permits and licenses only came into effect in 1914, the statute was adopted in 1913, but was effective in 1914, those rights tended to be junior to the pre-14 appropriative rights I just mentioned, and the riparian rights. So they were cut off first. Now, as to the permit and license rights, the State Water Resources Control Board has pretty good records about who's diverting the water, when they're diverting it during a water year, uh, how much water they're diverting, and where they're putting it to beneficial use. So the state's stock of knowledge about those water rights is pretty secure. However, the state lacks similar information as to the riparian water rights holders that I've just mentioned and those that took water prior to the adoption of the statute and permit system in 1913, implemented in 1914, rights that we call pre-1914 appropriate rights. Some have recommended that we have adjudications in California stream systems. Now, what is an adjudication? Adjudication is a legal term that is simply a process where a court or a state agency looks at claimants for water rights, determines who the claimant is, how much water they have, whether they're really putting it to beneficial use, and whether they therefore have a certified water right. It's roughly equivalent, let's say you have a boundary dispute with your neighbor. And you go to court and you try to determine where your boundary is, what the size of your lot is compared to your neighbor's lot. For the lawyers who may be listening, it's it's called quiet title. That is, you establish the title of your property. A water right adjudication is roughly similar to that. It says, we're going to look at the stream. We're going to look at all the people that are claiming they have water rights on the stream. We're going to look at their claims and we're going to determine How valid they are for many reasons, people may be claiming water rights that they cannot prove up. I won't go into the details, but this is frequently the case with people who claim riparian water rights. It also can be the case with people who claim pre-14 rights. So, what a water right adjudication would do is would take an entire watershed. Either a court or administrative agency would then ask people who divert from those watersheds to present their water right claims. Staff would then look at those claims, hold a hearing, and determine to whether those claims are valid or what, to what extent they are valid. Now, in an optimal world, this would be the way we manage our water resources in California. And in fact, in other states like Washington and Oregon, they use adjudications quite frequently. And in small watersheds in California, we have had stream adjudications. The problem with using adjudications as a method to address our water right problems is they're extremely cumbersome. There are thousands of diverters who divert from the Sacramento-San Joaquin River watershed, the watersheds that feed into the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. And conducting an adjudication is extraordinarily time-consuming and expensive. All the claimants have to prove their claims you typically hire a water rights lawyer, you probably have to have a surveyor, an engineer, an expert, all right, they're extraordinarily expensive. And from the standpoint of water resource management, they are not particularly feasible. Let me just give you one example. The state of Oregon is probably the state that has used stream adjudications the most. But what they have found is that in large watersheds, it's very cumbersome and time-consuming. There has been an adjudication of the Klamath River in Oregon that has been ongoing by the Oregon's Water Resources Department. It started in 1976. That's when the Water Resources Department of the state of Oregon initiated an adjudication of the Klamath River. That adjudication is still ongoing. We still don't have a final court decree establishing the water rights to the Klamath River. All right. So we are looking at a situation where close to 50 years have passed since the initiation of the adjudication of the Klamath River, and we still don't have a final outcome. So for large watersheds such as the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, my personal view is while in an optimal world, it would be great to adjudicate all the water rights on the stream system, as a practical water resource management tool I don't see how it works. Now, the water reform group that I have been working with, however, did recommend some reforms to encourage statutory adjudications. And I think on smaller watersheds, that those would be useful. On larger watersheds, I think another approach would be better. And one of the recommendations of the water reform group was to give the water board tools to investigate individual diverters to determine whether their claims in fact are legally valid while there exists some statutory authority that that can be read to give the water board that power today that authority is not expressly and uh, clearly identified in the water code and so the water reform group recommended that the water board be given that authority on a case-by-case diverter by diverter basis to investigate a water right claim to determine whether it is valid and to render a decision after notice and hearing. So the claimant has an opportunity to come to the board and present evidence as to the extent or scope of the right. The water board could either affirm the claimant's claim for the full amount of water, affirm the claim for a lesser amount of water or other condition on certain conditions, or it could say you haven't proved up your claim at all and we're going to deny you your water right. Again, due process would be fairly given to the water right claimant in in that no decision would have occurred until after notice and an opportunity for an evidentiary hearing is provided to the claimant. So the recommendation of the Water Reform Group was that the state water board be given this targeted authority. So rather than having to adjudicate the entire stream, they could look at trouble spots throughout the watershed and say, uh, you're claiming that you have this amount of water. We want to investigate that and we're going to notice a hearing and we're going to ask you to come forward and prove up your claim. I think that's a better result for our problems in the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta than adjudications.
0: So, how does the state record water use? And how are those with water rights required to record their diversions? And how's that
1: going? Well, part of the problem is that we have this patchwork system where riparian water rights holders and pre-1914 appropriators don't need to get a permit or license from the state in order to divert. They had pre-existing rights before the 1913 act went into play. So under existing law, they have to file what are called statements of diversions and use of water every year. Although they don't have to get a permit or license from the state to divert water, significant diverters from the Bay Delta estuary have to file annual statements of diversion and use of water. And recently, there has been an effort to require them to meter their diversion points and to provide metering information. This was wildly controversial. Prior to the, I believe, 2015 legislation, there was no requirement that if you held these pre-1914 rights or riparian rights, that you actually had to meter your diversions. But after 2015, legislation was adopted that required a monitoring process that required metering. However, the reports still only required you to report water that you had taken in the prior year. There was no real-time requirement for you to report your diversions. And there does exist, as I understand it, the available technology where if all diverters are required to meter and report their diversions, That you could have that information conveyed through telemetry systems to a central point on a real time basis. However, the state of California has never imposed this requirement on diverters. And while the technology is there, it probably would not be inexpensive. It would be costly. But the consequence of that for the state of California is say you enter a drought year, an unanticipated extreme drought year, and you know that by, say, March or April of that year. And you have to plan on how you're going to allocate water during these drought years. The truth of the matter is, on a real-time basis, you have no idea who is taking water, from what points of diversion, or in what quantity, or where they're placing it to beneficial use. Because you have no real-time information as to how water diversions occur in the state of California. This is actually astounding. Very simply put, water managers in the state of California are flying blind during an extreme drought. We really don't know who's taking water. I'm a water lawyer. I'm not an engineer or a technician of any sense. And I am hesitant to say without sound technical uh, support, that we could more promptly impose real-time reporting. So let's try out, through pilot projects, a real-time reporting process, uh, see how it works, see what can be done, what can't be done, uh, and then look at its broader application. This is, in essence, the recommendation of the Water Reform Group, and, and I hope the legislature adopts it.
0: Yeah, I hope so too. So I'm also wondering what's going on with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, Sigma and Groundwater Basin Monitoring. Are local governments getting up to speed?
1: Well, you know, we've we've been talking mostly about surface water, and I'm glad you've raised Sigma. Sigma being the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Unlike virtually every other Western state. Until recently, California has had little or no statewide management of its groundwater use. Geologists and hydrologists are actually appalled at the separation of surface water from groundwater because any hydrologist knows that your surface water affects your groundwater and your groundwater affects your surface water. But California has operated on separate systems where there's been some regulation of surface water and a little or no statewide regulation of groundwater. It's ironic, actually. I remember discussing this 40 years ago when I was a staff attorney with the Governor's Commission to Review California Water Rights Law. Even back then, everyone complained that California was overregulated. There were too many environmental regulations. But the truth of the matter is, if you're in California back then, if you wanted to extract groundwater, you simply put a pump in your property and you took it. You didn't have to get a permit from the state state agency. You didn't have to have any onerous terms and conditions on your pumping. You just put a pump in. Now, if you went over the state line into Nevada, particularly into groundwater basins in Nevada, a state not known for excessive environmental regulation, and you wanted to put a pump in on your property, you would have to go to a bureaucrat in Carson City and get a permit. So the allegedly more libertarian and anti-government state government of Nevada had a much more rigorous requirement for groundwater extraction that California had. Well, in 2014, the legislature finally decided to address groundwater extraction. They did not give the State Water Resources Control Board the authority to issue permits for groundwater, however. What they created was a system of regional groundwater management agencies known as groundwater sustainability agencies. Now, the unique aspect of this statute is that the groundwater sustainability agency had to overlie an identified groundwater basin. And this was logical because you couldn't use county lines or other water agency lines because some of those agencies might not overlap the entire basin and you couldn't regulate part of the basin by one agency and another part of the basin by another agency. So you had to have agency management that overlapped the basin. Now, you could conceivably have Multiple agencies engage in that same activity if they created what the lawyers call a joint powers agreement or some kind of joint arrangement where you shared responsibility. But generally speaking, it would make no sense to have multiple agencies regulate a groundwater basin. You should have one agency that overlies the basin, and that would be what the Sigma calls the groundwater sustainability agencies. Now, What did Sigma do? It required that these agencies create groundwater sustainability plans and that those plans would have to address the adverse effects of groundwater extraction. Well, what are those adverse effects? In much of California, in the San Joaquin Valley, and in some of the Central Valley, because our groundwater pumping has never been regulated, groundwater extractions vastly exceed the natural and artificial replenishment of those basins. Groundwater basins are replenished by rainfall or or artificial recharge of the basin uh, imposed by others. So either rainfall replenishes your groundwater basin or snowmelt replenishes your groundwater basin or you bring in water from other areas and you artificially recharge your groundwater basin. When your groundwater extraction exceeds your natural or artificial recharge, then two things happen. One, your groundwater levels drop. And that means your groundwater wells have to be deepened in order to extract water. That's much more expensive, much more energy intensive, and is only affordable to the largest farmers. Amazingly, Amazingly, in the Central Valley, it is not uncommon to have groundwater pumps that extend downward over 2,500 feet. To put that in perspective, that's a pump that extends downwards twice the height of the Empire State Building. Now, as you might guess, this produces considerable inequities because Not everyone can afford to pump groundwater with a pumping facility that goes down 20, 2,500 feet. And so only the largest, most well heeled agricultural operations can meet those requirements. And if the groundwater table drops because of that, then smaller pumpers, less well off pumpers, and in particular domestic, uh, that is household pumpers may lose their groundwater supply. The Sustainable Groundwater Management Act was supposed to address that through these groundwater sustainability plans that the groundwater sustainability agencies were to adopt. In the areas of the Central Valley that were significantly overdraft, those plans have, in fact, been finalized. Now, what the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act required is that they be submitted to the Department of Water Resources for review. And the Department of Water Resources would determine whether the plans are adequate or inadequate. The term they use are complete or incomplete. But it's basically an adequacy analysis. The timeline for achieving sustainability, however, was extremely long. The legislation gave these groundwater agencies 20 years to come into a groundwater arrangement that would be sustainability. And let's make make no mistake about what this means. Groundwater sustainability would mean that to the extent farmers use groundwater as their water supply, they either would have to s- find alternate supplies of water, such as surface water, or you're talking about seriously taking farmland out of production. My guess is the reason why the legislature allowed for this twenty-year period. Is the difficulty of actually achieving groundwater sustainability? So these plans have been submitted to the Department of Water Resources, and very recently the Department of Water Resources has uh, has begun assessing the adequacy of these plans. All right, and frankly, to my surprise, they have been doing a very, very, very professional job, and have calling have, have been calling the plans as the hydrology and the engineering call for it. And a number of the Central Valley plans, I believe we're talking about over 50 plans, have initially been determined by the Department of Water Resources as not being adequate in meeting the requirements of Sigma, and have been sent back to the agencies to be redone. And in many of these situations, it is because the plans did not account for the impact of groundwater pumping on adjacent pumpers, particularly pumpers who might be using water, not for agricultural, but for domestic use. Let me just be precise. Let's just say you live in an area of the San Joaquin Valley that is not incorporated within a municipality or a county government that provides water service. And let's say your water use is solely from domestic wells. As you might imagine, many of these communities that meet those characteristics are communities that contain people from disadvantaged and racially and racial backgrounds that are not wealthy. Mark Erics, in his book Dreamt Land, talked about Fairmead, one of the communities in the San Joaquin Valley. Well, if a farmer comes in and buys up several hundred acres of land, or maybe several thousands of acres of land, puts in an almond orchard, puts in a deep high turbine well, the pumping for farming operations will create what's called a cone of depression, which the uh, groundwater table adjacent to the farming operation is depressed. In many situations, the domestic well user then loses his or her ability to pump water. So they can't take a shower, they can't wash their clothes, they can't use toilet, they can't, all the things that we take for granted. The nightmare that I spoke of earlier, the nightmare where 25 million people lose a guarantee to a reliable, clean water supply is actually occurring in significant portions of the San Joaquin Valley today. The Sustainable Groundwater Management Act was supposed to take steps to address this. One of the reasons the Department of Water Resources has found many of the plans to be inadequate is, it, is that they don't realistically address this problem of adverse effects in disadvantaged communities to domestic well users. Now, so what happens if these plans are not rectified by the groundwater sustainability, the local groundwater sustainability agencies? Well, There are two remedies. One is the agencies can be put on a status that indicates that their operations are inadequate. And they can be designated as having, in essence, failed to comply with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And some consequences flow from that. But in the worst situations, and this is what they call the hammer clause within the sustainable groundwater management act if after multiple efforts the groundwater management plans are not consistent with the requirements of the sustainable groundwater management act then the state water resources control board not the department of resource water resources but the state water resources control Board, can step in and impose its own plan on that groundwater basin now that was always viewed as a drastic outcome, all right? Frankly, it always amazed me when compared to other Western states where state agencies have a significant role in, in managing groundwater actions, why we think having the State Water Resources Control Board or the State Sustainable Groundwater Management Act participate in developing alternate plans would be such an extraordinary or radical outcome. But within the water community, it's considered an extreme outcome. But we may have to go there if, in fact, the sustainable groundwater management plans that the local agencies are adopting continue to prove to be inadequate. History will tell us what outcomes will occur here. I might add that one of the recommendations of the Water Reform Group was to expressly require, in no uncertain terms, that the sustainable groundwater agencies be responsible for mitigating the adverse effects that groundwater extraction may have on adjacent domestic wells. The Water Reform Group recommended that the local agency be expressly responsible for mitigating the consequences of the adverse effects of groundwater extraction on domestic wells. That they could do so by providing the domestic well user with the resources to deepen their wells or providing connections to an adjacent municipal supply or by providing some other alternate water resources for the the impaired households. To the extent we are going to move forward with the approach of local groundwater management and to the extent we genuinely believe as the legislature adopted in 2012 that there is a human right to water the water reform group felt that the responsibility for implementing that human right to water in the context of groundwater should be with the sustainable groundwater management agency there's an old saying in law school that there can be no right without a remedy, that if you have a right, there must be a way to implement that right. There must be some kind of remedy. What the Water Reform Group sought to do in its recommendation is we're now going to provide a remedy. We're going to make it expressly clear that the local groundwater management agencies will be responsible for mitigating the adverse effects of groundwater extraction on adjacent domestic wells.
0: Just so I understand that clearly is that say if folks in a town or in an unincorporated area run out of water, their well gets dry, that then that local groundwater basin authority would figure out a way to get them water and they'd have to pay for it, not the state.
1: Yeah, that would be the outcome. If the water reform group's recommendation is adopted all right it is unclear under the current implementation of the sustainable groundwater management act the extent and scope of the sustainable groundwater agency's duties to mitigate i think you could read the act as as it's currently drafted as requiring that mitigation but there could be an alternate reading as well what the water reform group wanted to do was to make that responsibility to mitigate explicit and put that responsibility directly on the local water agency. Now, the state would be free, of, coming to, of course, to come in and help with financing and, and any other kind of funding mechanism to ensure that occurs. But somebody has to hold that responsibility. And given the structure of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, the Water Reform Group felt that The local groundwater agency should have that legal duty.
0: In closing, I just want to ask you if there's anything you want to reiterate that you want the public to know.
1: First of all, I want to thank you for this very in-depth interview process. What I would leave your listeners with is that everyone, every day, should be attentive as to where their water is coming from. because. The water doesn't follow the plow as the 19th century Western settlers thought it was. That you create a water demand doesn't mean that there will be a water supply. And I truly believe that there is a genuine risk within the not-too-distant future that one day we will wake up, we will turn on the tap, and nothing will come out. And We shouldn't wait for that day to occur, to take steps to mitigate it. We can take steps now.
0: Thank you so much, Clifford, for all your time, your expertise, and thank you so much for all your public service.
1: All right, well, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure, Natalie. We just
0: heard from Clifford Lee. Retired Deputy Attorney General with the California Department of Justice. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Save California Salmon or any entities mentioned. You've been listening to West Coast Water Justice, produced by me, Natalie Kilmer. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The music is from the album Now That's What I Call Surf by Tony Bald, Adam Inigias, and Danny Snyder.